1 Timothy 3, chapters, or chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons, if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. In, uh, in Acts chapter 6, the young church in Jerusalem faces a big problem. If you're familiar with the story, the church was growing rapidly and a complaint arose amongst the church members. Now, sometimes in church, complaints arise. I know, it's hard to believe, but yes, it does happen sometimes. And sometimes some complaints arise that shouldn't be complaints at all, but this complaint was very legitimate. The church was helping to provide food for the widows within the church. But the complaint came to the apostles that the Greek widows were being neglected while the Hebrew widows were not. Now, this one problem created multiple issues for the church. First off, widows who needed care were not getting it. As if that wasn't enough, this complaint, this issue distracted the apostles from their primary ministry role in the church, which was preaching the word and prayer. Not to say that feeding widows was unimportant by any stretch of the imagination, but God had given them a particular task to do. And this was threatening to distract them from that task. Furthermore, partiality within the church threatened the church's gospel witness in two ways. It threatened it by distorting the representation of God's character in Christ's body. As people looked at Christ's body, they saw partiality. They saw something that was not uh, becoming of the character of God. Secondarily, it was destroying the unity of the church itself. And so the solution then was to find seven men, men with good reputations, men full of the spirit and wisdom, it says, and to give them responsibility over that particular need. Now, in this passage in Acts 6, they weren't given the title deacon. They were described, uh, what they did was described as deaconing or serving, but they weren't given the title deacon. But the same pieces are there for what a deacon is and what a deacon does. And so we have sort of a, a prototype, if you will, for deacons. And the result in Acts 6 of these men being placed over this task is this. It says there, Quote, the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. You see, the tangible ser- service of these proto-deacons, if you will, had eternal consequences. And the tangible service of deacons in the church today has eternal consequence. It's critically important for a strong church. So this morning, I want you to understand this. I want you to understand that deacons serve the church by taking responsibility for particular needs, and this is a blessing to the church and the deacons. So I know I usually try to summarize the sermon in a short sentence, but this is a long sentence, but you know, I wanted to get all the parts in there. So I'll say it again. The deacons serve the church by taking responsibility for particular needs. And this is a blessing both to the church and 
the deacons. And so similar to last week, if you were here, as we talked about elders, I want to examine first the good work of deacons, then the good character of deacons, then the good wives of deacons with a question mark, and you'll find out why when we get to that section, and then the good outcome of deacons. All right. So let's start with the good work of deacons. Now, this passage before us has actually um, not very much to say in particular about the work that deacons are to do. In fact, the specifics of their work is rather vague, more vague than it is for elders within the scriptures. Perhaps this is uh, to make their role uh, adaptable in certain ways to differing needs in the church over time and space, right? But I thought it would be helpful to frame their task somewhat based on what the text explicitly says and what we can reasonably discern from it. So let me give you a, f- a few points about what their task is. The first, the first uh, point on what their task is is this. Deacons are not elders. You need to understand that deacons are not elders. The entire uh, chapter of 1 Timothy 3 is a unit. 1 Timothy 3, 1-13 is one unit of thought giving qualifications for offices in the church. And this unit of thought is shaped by a particular grammatical structure. And I want you to see this in the text. In verse 2, we see that it starts, therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. And then if you look in verse 8, there is an introductory adverb, which we translate into English, likewise, or depending on your translation, it might be in the same way or similarly, all have the same sense for what this adverb is trying to do. And then you may notice, depending on your translation, you may notice that the words must be are italicized there. So a deacons likewise must be. In the ESV, in my ESV, it's not italicized, but in many, it is. And the reason that it's italicized is because the Greek here is literally deacons likewise dignified. There is actually no verb must be there. You see, that word likewise, that introductory adverb, the way that that functions in the Greek language is it must uh, supply a verb to it from previously in that unit of thought, in that section. And so, our translators rightly reach back to verse 2 and grab must be and supply it there in verse 8. Likewise, they must be dignified. Now, this grammatical structure then is introducing a new and distinct group of individuals while also connecting this new section, starting in verse 8, to the previous section, starting in verse 2, because both are dealing with the qualifications for those groups of people. Does that make sense? I know this is like a little English lesson, and I'm, you know, if you were like me, you didn't really like English very much, um, and so stick with me. But here's the point. If this is introducing a new yet distinct group of individuals, then deacons must be similar to elders in some way. And and, and what's happening here is similar in that it's describing the qualifications for this group of people in the church. And yet, they cannot be elders. They must be distinct. Nor is it saying that deacons are a stepping stone position to eldership. They're a distinct group of people in the church with a distinct role. And we see a little bit of this difference in the qualifications themselves between elders and deacons. Whereas elders were required to be able to teach, we saw last week, and were described as taking care of the church of God, That's not the case for deacons. That's not to say that deacons are restricted from teaching. They're just not required by that position, by their office of of deacon, to do so. Nor are deacons then 
a second decision-making body because, as we'll see, deacon's authority is under the authority of the elders. It's the elders who have the ultimate earthly authority over the church, and the deacons work uh, under them, deriving authority from those elders in a particular area. So then, what then do they do? Well, here's my second point on what their task is. Deacons assist the elders. The word that's translated deacon can appear both in verb form, as in serving, deaconing, or as a general noun, servant, as it does in Acts 6, right? But it can also be used as a more technical title, as it does here in our passage in 1 Timothy 3. The best scholarship around this uh, word and its usage in the Greek language gives us a slightly more specific definition, though. A deacon is an intermediate person between someone who needs to see something done and that thing that needs to be done. As the Greek dictionary defines it, quote, one who gets something done at the behest of a superior. In other words, a deacon is an assistant. He's an assistant to a particular superior to complete a particular task. And that aligns perfectly with what we see in this example in Acts 6. The apostles recognized the real need, but it wasn't best for them personally to do it. It wasn't best for God's kingdom and for the church for them to divide their attention from the tasks that were particular to them to go and do this other task, which was absolutely important, absolutely vital, absolutely necessary. They just needed someone else to do it. Someone that was fit for that task. And so they delegated that particular responsibility to trustworthy men who would see that it would get done. So deacons are not elders. Deacons assist elders. The third aspect that I want to point out is deacons serve three general purposes. First, deacons meet tangible and practical needs in the church. Far from being unspiritual, these tangible needs are eminently spiritual, just as we saw in Acts 6. My guess is that those widows did not find the task of those deacons to be less important or unspiritual, right? Sometimes we can divide the practical, the, the, the seen, the material from the immaterial, from the spiritual, and God's Word just doesn't do that. We have a Savior who came in the flesh to live among us, right? He literally has brought together heaven and earth in his own body. And so these practical needs are eminently spiritual, right? You can say you care about widows until you're blue in the face. You can claim to feed them and you can claim that the gospel is impartial, but if you see that those things are slipping through the cracks and you don't take care of it, it speaks a different thing. It speaks a different priority. It speaks a different character. Taking care of that need had a real impact on the gospel fruit of the church. The second general purpose is deacons promote unity in the church. Deacons are um, they're sort of like, as one person said it, deacons are sort of like shock absorbers. They're sort of like the, the oil that kind of lubricates the engine, if you will. In meeting a need everyone, that everyone recognized, they eliminated any reasonable complaint, and they reduced the possibility of disunity amongst the body. They reduced the, the, the possibility that the Greek Jews, or the, the Greek uh, Christians and the Jewish Christians might have some sort of conflict because... One group thought that their other widows were being left out because of their ethnicity, right? And so, deacons find these needs and they meet these particular needs 
in order that um, those reasonable complaints would, would be removed because the need is met. Third, deacons support the ministry of the Word. By taking this responsibility on themselves, they indirectly promote Word ministry by freeing up those who are, who are doing that task. When a deacon meets a need, and I then don't have to do that thing, I can take more time on a sermon or studying a topic or preparing to teach or, or, or doing pastoral counseling or whatever else that might need to be done. Now, that doesn't mean that I ought to be unwilling to do anything. You know, I've removed toilets in this building. I've taken out trash. I've, I've swept floors, right? It doesn't mean that, you know, the elders, you know, stand off as if they don't have any task of serving. And yet, at the same time, as a church, we have to recognize what the best use of different people's times are. That, that as a good coach, we have to go, you know, we've got to put the right people in the right positions for the team to win. So deacons serve in those ways in order to support the ministry of the Word. So, kind of a summary, deacons serve the church by taking responsibility for particular needs. That was the first half of our sermon in a sentence. They serve the, tur- the church not just by doing the thing, but by taking responsibility for the thing. And the authority that's needed to see this responsibility through ought to be given to them by the elders that they are assisting. And it ought to be recognized by the church that they're serving. In a sense, deacons carry the authority of the elders into that particular need that's being given to them. And by carrying the authority of the elders, they're carrying the authority of Christ who has put those elders in place. So if you're taking notes on the right side of your page, you could maybe make a little extra box there and put application. Application, at this point, have elders or have deacons. First application, have deacons. It's simple, but as you may know, we haven't had deacons here at Proclaim. And over the last year or so, uh, I and the other elders grew increasingly convicted about this. No excuses, right? No, no justifying uh, different ways that maybe we were doing things. We didn't have deacons. The Bible says there ought to be deacons. And so, we repented, and we've been taking steps of obedience. Listen, there are times when, whether because you didn't understand something, or you maybe had a, a you didn't know, or maybe you just you were sinful about a thing, that you were going to come face to face with something in Scripture or some uh, uh, something that God commands of you, and you're going to realize I wasn't doing that, or I was doing that wrong, or I was doing something sinful, and you are going to be tempted at that point to somehow try to do some sort of mental gymnastics around that to justify yourself, to excuse yourself. Because frankly, it's difficult when we come face to face with that to realize I may have been sinning in significant ways for a long time. And we, we frankly, we just don't want to admit that sometimes. But what God calls us to is this, repent. Repent, seek forgiveness from Christ, Know that He's forgiven you, and then obey God's Word, and God will bless you for it. It really is that simple. Christ really has forgiven you. Don't pretend it's something other than what it is. And so that's what we had to do. We had to go, you know what? We have messed this up. We've dropped the ball here. No excuse. Let's seek to correct it. And so we've got four men who are in the process of vetting to become deacons. Hopefully by the end of the year, we're able to um, get through that process and they're able to become deacons and and take on um, some particular needs in the church. But it's not just about filling a spot 
with a warm and willing body. These men are to be men of character. And so we come to our second point. What is the good character of deacons? Now, character is of critical importance for anyone who takes up this kind of responsibility in the church, right? And the bulk of our passage is about this character. And so similar to last week, I'm going to divide this into four categories. Deacons need to be self-disciplined. They need to be faith keepers. They need to be well-regarded. And they need to be household leaders. Now, I won't probably spend quite as much time on this as I did last week. Some of the categories overlap, and you can you know, go back and listen to last week's sermon if you're more curious. But, but let me talk about each of them briefly. First, deacons need to be self-disciplined. As we said last week, if you can't, um, you can really only, only lead other people as well as you're leading yourself. If you can't lead yourself, it's gonna be, you're going to have a hard time leading others. And so we need to be self-disciplined. First, we see that deacons must be dignified or worthy of respect. It is a positively stated trait that's very similar to above reproach or respectable that we saw with elders. And then we have these three negatively stated traits that sort of example this self-discipline or the self-control that, that deacons ought to have. First, we see that they need to be controlled with their tongue. So they're not, they're not to be double-tongued, particularly not devious in speech. That's what that term means, devious in speech. Deacons can't talk out of both sides of their mouth, right? They can't say this over here and then really mean that over there or whatever. And you can understand, even from our example in Acts 6, with all three of these um, uh, negatively stated traits, you can understand how if deacons struggle with these things, it's going to create a lot of problems as they seek to meet practical needs in the church. So they got to be controlled with their tongue. They also need to be controlled with alcohol. There is an obvious problem with someone res- being responsible uh, for a thing in the church who tends towards drunkenness, not only in terms of the witness of the church, but also in terms of the fidelity of the duties that they have. People who are drunk do stupid things, right? They tend to do foolish things. And you can't put someone, uh, a responsibility in someone's hand who, who may uh, take that responsibility and then mix it with, with drunkenness. It just doesn't go well. Finally, they need to be controlled with money. Now think about this. Imagine if these men in Acts 6 were greedy for dishonest gain. And then, and then these apostles said, okay, here's the funds that people have you know, sold their property, they sold you know, their donkey, they sold their whatever to be able to help feed the widows, give some money to the widow fund, and they hand that to these men who ended up, they're actually greedy for selfish gain, and they're stealing from this fund instead of giving it to the widows. Imagine the problems that would create It would be even worse than the original complaint, right? And sadly, sadly, we have examples of that in churches today. So these deacons need to be controlled with money. They need to be trustworthy. Second, they need to be faith keepers. Verse 9 tells us that they need to be able to hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. They, they, they hold it, that is, they, they keep to it, they preserve, uh, they persevere in the faith. They really believe it, they assent to it, they trust it. And what, what is it? It is the mystery of the faith. Now, mystery, mystery doesn't mean something that, that, that can't be known or isn't known. Uh, in biblical terms, when it's talking about the mystery of the faith, or the mystery of Christ, or we'll see uh, next week, I believe, the mystery of godliness. When, when Paul is using this phrase, he, what he's talking about with that word mystery is something that previously wasn't uh, clear, but now has been made clear in the person of Jesus Christ. It's, it's that plan of salvation that was obscured prior to Christ, and yet now is revealed in um, manifest very clearly in what Christ has done. That's the mystery of the faith. It's as if you go, yeah, that was a a mystery. But I finished the book, and now I know what it is, right? 
And they're to hold to this mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, meaning it's not just verbally assenting to the right truths. It's not just being able to answer the right questions on a theology quiz. But it's, but it's the kind of faith that's lived out in their life. It's the kind of faith where, with a clear conscience, with no insincerity of heart, they go, yeah, I am seeking to obey God. I am seeking to live with my faith in Christ. And it doesn't mean they're perfect. Because a clear conscience doesn't... Look, this is the beauty of Christ. We don't have a clear conscience because we do everything perfect, because none of us do everything perfect. We have a clear conscience because Christ's blood washes our conscience. He has forgiven us because we go to him when we mess up and we repent and he says, you're forgiven and we trust, we hold on to Christ. We hold on to the faith in him. And so we continue to live with a clear conscience. So these faith keepers, these deacons are faith keepers. They know God's word, they rely on God's word and they live by God's word. Third, they're well regarded. In verse 10, we see that these deacons should be tested first, it says. And this testing is to prove themselves blameless. It's not, uh, it's not testing as if like, hey, we, need to, we want this guy to meet this need, and so we need to have him do this thing to see if he can, is able to do that. It's not a testing that is so, much about, uh, is so much about competency as much as it's a testing that's about character. They need to be tested that they're blameless. The assumption is if they meet these character qualifications, then they're going to be proficient enough at the tasks that they're given. You see, we... Uh, in our, in our um, modern mindset, I suppose, the world we live in, we're obsessed with efficiency in tasks. We're obsessed with talent. We're obsessed with gifting. We're obsessed with uh, these kinds of things. But Paul, Paul's not looking for a rock star. Paul is looking for a rock solid. That's what he's looking for in deacons. And that's what we should look for. My church growing up, we had, um, it was a fairly good-sized church, and we had a, a, a real big kitchen, and uh, we did a lot of different meals. Every Wednesday night, they did a meal. We did, you know, funeral meals, lots of different things. And this kitchen was big. It was well-stocked. It was always perfectly clean, and it was always perfectly organized. And there was this one older lady who everyone in the church, if you'd been there for two months, you knew, she was in charge of the kitchen. I Wish I could remember her name. I don't remember her name. Um, but it was her kitchen. In fact, it had become infamously called her kitchen. The reason being was if you put something back in the wrong place, or if you were even in there without permission, or without her being uh, given you know, the permission slip ahead of time or whatever, then you would be waylaid by her if she caught you. I mean, there were times I remember when I was helping, you know, I, I was like me, a high school student, and I was helping with a youth pastor with middle school youth group or whatever, and, and the youth pastor would say, hey, go to the kitchen and get me X, Y, Z, something out of there uh, that, that he needed. And I'm pretty sure looking back that he sent me because he didn't want to go in there. He didn't want to fall under the the um, wrath, if you will. And I, and I seriously, not even joking, you know, this is like, an, an, it, it probably worse today. She'd probably put a cam up cameras today. They didn't have that back then. But I, you know, you'd like come up to the kitchen, you'd sneak up and you'd like look around. Like look up, up on, on, the, on the balcony above the gym. Like look in the door. Like make sure that she's not like somewhere watching. And then you open the door, run in there, get whatever you need, get out of there as quickly as possible, Right? Looking back, I think, well, looking back, I wonder how, um, how that was allowed to carry on. Sure, 
the kitchen was always organized. Sure, the kitchen was always clean. Sure, they always had what you needed. The meals were always made, all those things. But I look back and I think, how many people left our church? Hurt. Sinned against. Because, because of the way in which this lady operated that kitchen. Because, not because she wasn't, she was incompetent in any way. Because the character wasn't there. And because no one would stand up to her and say, no, I would rather have a messier kitchen and someone with character in charge of it than to have a perfectly clean kitchen and let sin continue in our church. So deacon must be well-regarded, proven to be blameless. Finally, a deacon needs to be a household leader. We're going to skip over verse 11 for a second. We're going to talk about that on the next point. But, but I want to finish in verse 12 here. These um, qualifications... We find two qualities listed here that are similar to those for elders. First, a deacon needs to be a faithful husband. Just, just like um, same phrase that's used with elders, and you can, if you remember that from last week, I won't go over that again. But, but a deacon needs to be a faithful husband to his wife. And second, a deacon um, is one that leads his household and children well leads his household and children well. And so it's very similar to elders, but there's some slight differences. And what, what do these similarities and differences mean? Well, for both elders and deacons, obviously faithfulness and leadership in the home is really the uh, high mark of proving, um, for, proving yourself for leadership in the church, in God's household. There cannot be a double life where a man looks good at church, but is either a terror at home or is passive at home. That just cannot be. There, the deacon's home life must be known to qualify them. If a deacon is not applying himself to his God-given responsibilities at home, then it would be negligent of the church to give him responsibilities at the church. You know, a lot of times... Um, there are men, you know, who come and they say, you know, I really want to serve in this way. I really want to do X, Y, or Z. Or is there some way I can serve in the church? And, and what I want to say is, if you haven't figured out uh, how to lead your home first, go and figure that out. If you've got a few extra hours in the day, I don't want you to spend it here if you haven't spent it there already. If you've not figured that out yet, Apply yourself to that first. Get that in order. And then let's talk about the ways in which you can serve in, in, in more substantial or more, or more time-consuming uh, ways in the church. You see, a good household leader doesn't necessarily do everything at home, though, right? Not at all. But he helps others in the family to know what to do and how to help. He helps to make sure that the family is, is running, the household is running. And the same is true in God's household. Deacons don't do everything, but they're responsible in such a way as to employ the members of the church appropriately to meet the needs that they are responsible over. So that kind of leadership does take more time, and that's why I think it's so important for the deacon to make sure that he's doing that at home, that he's applying himself in that at home first before he's doing that in God's household. And so, again, on the right side of your page, if you're, if you're you know, writing your applications over there, um, or wherever you write your applications, do it your way. You could write this, second application, help deacons. We've got to have deacons, but our second application is help deacons. One of the biggest helps to a deacon in God's household, though, tends to be their biggest help in their own household. It is oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, their wife. And so that leads us to our third point here, the good wives of deacons 
question mark. Or you might say the good wives of deacons. I'll say it like that. So let's come back to verse 11 for a second. And the first question we have to ask is, who were we talking about? You see, the ESV translates uh, the word, the Greek word here translates it wives, but the word can be translated wives or women, and it's entirely dependent, uh, the way it's translated is entirely dependent on the context it's in. It's the same exact word. And so are we talking, what are we talking about when we're, we're talking about their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things? Because we have that likewise, we have a new group of people, distinct in some way, with their own qualifications. What are they? Well, well I'm going to, for simplicity's sake and for time's sake, I'm going to limit our options a little bit, down to maybe our, our, the three top options that you might see in churches. The first is this. There are many churches who will say, this is speaking of women deacons. Women deacons who are co-equal in office and co-equal in task to male deacons. And so they'll say something like, well, you know, in the first eight, verses 8 and 9, you know, we're, we're talking about male deacons, and then um, in verse 10, it's all deacons. In verse 11, it's women deacons. In verse 12, it goes back to just male deacons or, or something like that. Slightly different, slight differences on how people break that up, but that's how they'll see it. The second option is that it's, it's the SV translated it correctly and that it's talking about wives of deacons. And the third option that I'm going to present is uh, that, that it could be talking about an order of widows who assist deacons in a particular way. So I want, to, I want to talk about each of these a little bit, and I want to tell you why we have settled where we've settled on this. So I'm avoiding, you might ask the question, well, aren't, isn't there something called a deaconess? I've heard this before, this deaconess. What's, what's that about? Well, I'm avoiding that term uh, for a couple of reasons. One, it's, it's not actually a word it's not actually a word in the Bible that's ever used in the Bible. It's not, uh, there's no Greek word for deaconess in the scriptures. It's a word that was developed in Greek uh, probably well later after the time of uh, the, the New Testament was written. But it is a, a role that has uh, a title that has been given throughout church history. The problem is, is that over time, it's been applied to uh, women who serve this, this exact same as male deacons. It's been applied to women who are sort of like male deacons, but slightly different. And it's also been applied to the order of widows that we're going to see um, in 1 Timothy chapter 5. And so it becomes confusing when you, you can read an ancient text, right? You can read a, an old letter or you can read an, a, a, an old commentary and you see the word deaconess, and we might jump to a conclusion about what that is, but without actually reading that person's context, what that person believes a deaconess does, it's, it's, it becomes really confusing. And so I'm just trying to avoid that, um, avoid that confusion in and give these, these three options more just on, on the description of what they do. So let me start by saying that faithful churches, as, I've, as I was saying, faithful churches have differing views on this, okay? And, I, and we don't hold this as a gospel essential issue. Like, I wouldn't say like, oh, that church has female deacons. They don't preach the gospel. No, I, 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 it's not a gospel essential issue, um, But it's also not a conversation that you can avoid, right? Because it's, it's too obvious. It has too, too um, plain of practical implications. Like either you have women for, as deacons or you don't. And so it's impactful. And so you have to kind of decide what do you believe. What we had as elders had to decide what do we believe this is, is saying. And so... First, I want to make an argument for why we believe deacons should be men, and thus ruling out uh, the first option. And then I want to give our best understanding of why, uh, of who Paul is talking about here. So why shouldn't, why shouldn't women be deacons? A major argument against women deacons comes from our understanding of what a deacon does. If they are assistants to elders, then they are under the authority of elders, but they also are given authority over the church 
uh, in a particular aspect by the elders. And, and women in this kind of authoritative position would be in conflict with the preceding context and what we saw uh, Paul write to Timothy in chapter 2, verse 12, when he states, I do not permit woman to exercise authority over a man. Now, if you remember when we were talking about that, uh, it's very easy at that point to go, well, that seems unfair. But I want to remind you that God created men and women. He designed us. He designed marriage. And he designed the church. And he died for every man and woman who is a part of the church. Right? He is not an unloving God. And he is not an ignorant God. And if that's the way he's designed things to be, then it is for the good of the church and it is for the good of men and women. And I think what we find is that this actually frees women up to do the things that God has actually designed them to do. And this doesn't negate the important ways that women can and do serve in the church and in their own households in any way at all. Rather, it frees them to do those tasks. So that'd be my first major argument for why women ought not to be deacons. Additionally, some may argue in favor of women deacons because of that likewise grammatical structure that designates a new group. They, the argument is that since likewise is repeated in verse 11, therefore wives and women defines a, uh, another office-holding group. And so it must be elders and male deacons and female deacons. However, the problem with that is that structure distinguishes each group from the other groups. Therefore, it cannot be female deacons the same as male deacons, because the women in verse 11 must be a distinct group, not the same as the previous groups. So if this, if, if this is indeed the case, they would in some way relate to deacons in verse 8. There would be some sort of connection, and they certainly would have qualifications, but they would be distinct from them. Now, another objection that may arise here uh, that often comes up is that in Romans 16, verse 1, um, Phoebe is called a deacon. Now, now in your ESV, it says it calls Phoebe a servant. The ESV translates it servant. But the word, the Greek word behind there is, is the same word that can be translated deacon. And the question is, the trick of the translation is this. Is it talking about deacon as in the general sense of the noun or as in that particular title that we see here in 1 Timothy 3? And again, context is what is helping to determine that. However, if the word is meant in that specific sense, so let's say that that word deacon in Romans 16 verse 1 is meant to be in the specific sense that deacon is used multiple times here in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy. Then the question arises, why then does Paul differentiate women out from male deacons? If he's willing to call women deacons, deacon, that's it, just use that title for them, in, in Romans then why, does, why would he not use that term for them here in 1 Timothy 3? So I think that, at least in my uh, mind, that is a, an argument, not, by no means a lock-tight argument, but it is an argument against seeing Phoebe as a deacon, co-equal in office and, ta and, and task as male deacons. And so, as I said, I don't know that anyone can make a Loctite argument one way or the other, which is why we don't hold this at that gospel essential level. But who are they then? Like, we have to come to a decision, and that leaves us with two options. Either Paul is referencing an order of widows, which 
he'll describe further in 1 Timothy 5. Now, I'm going to hold off kind of extended conversation about that until we get to 1 Timothy 5. Or he's discussing deacons' wives. And while I think it could be a reference here to that order of widows, due to its placement within the conversation about deacons and its position right next to the family responsibilities of deacons, the elders as a whole are more inclined to think that this is describing qualifications for a deacon's wife. And the nature of deacon work, even as compared to the nature of elder work, might actually lend itself to deacons' wives helping them in their task, and so their character actually becomes critically important to what they do. And frankly, that works, uh, that makes sense with the reality all the way back in Genesis chapter 2, when God creates Adam and he gives him a purpose in the garden, and he places him in the garden, and he says, actually, you need some help, and he makes Eve to help him with the purpose that God gave him there. And so then they are able to share in that. So we've got the good work of deacons, the good character of deacons, the good wives of deacons, but finally I want to talk about the good outcome for deacons, and we see this in verse 13. It says, For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. This is sort of a unique promise that's given to deacons here. He is not saying, I don't think that this is a primary motivation to be a deacon. However, it is a beneficial outcome. It is a, a good promise for those who serve well as deacons. See, deacons serve the church by taking responsibility for particular needs, and it's a blessing to the church, but it's also a blessing to the deacons. God blesses faithful deacons in two ways. Both of these are in relation to the faith that's in Christ Jesus. Both are in relation to the Christian faith. First, it says they gain a good standing. Now, our justification before God, our, our standing before God in that way is based solely on Christ's work. But in some sense, this work uh, of serving well advances our standing, it says, either in the eyes of our fellow believers who see Christ at work in and through us, or as Paul uh, says later, it stores up treasures for ourselves for eternity. Second, these deacons who serve well gain great boldness. The word confidence here it's more often translated boldness or even courage. As these men serve the church through this practical gospel work, it, takes, uh, it makes them more bold and more confident in regard to the faith. As they serve well, they don't become complacent. They actually become courageous, it says. And it reminds me of Acts 6, one of the seven guys that were selected with Stephen to serve these widows' tables. And then Stephen went on to become an evangelist. And then in the next chapter in Acts 7, Stephen gives this grand sermon before a whole crowd of people who are persecuting him, who are charging him, who are, who are angry at him. And he gives this, this grand sermon detailing the history of Scripture and all that Christ has done, all that God has done, leading up to Christ, right? And, and then he gets to the crescendo where he says, it's about Jesus, and what happens? They stone him to death. I wonder if as Paul is writing these words, he's remembering, standing there, giving approval for Stephen's death and going, that was a deacon who served the church. And I, I have not before and not since seen such boldness and courage in the faith as that man. And so we have one last application. Honor deacons. Honor the position 
It's usually less visible. Honor those who serve in it. Honor those who serve well as deacons. We ought to honor deacons. And this is how God's economy works, right? When, when we serve his people, not looking for some sort of uh, personal gain, we'll find that Jesus' words hold true, that the last shall be first. This is so true that Jesus himself actually lived it out. Sure, elders represent Jesus in a unique way as shepherds, but deacons represent Jesus in a unique way as servants as well, right? Jesus was the great deacon who met the greatest particular need that the church had. We failed to live an obedient life and he lived it for us. We needed someone to satisfy God's wrath for our sins and he died for us. And just before he did that, in John 17, this is what Jesus prays to the Father. He says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me. I did the service you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Or Paul says in Philippians 2, he summarizes it this way, In being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Even between the Father and the Son is true. Jesus served the church by taking responsibility for our most significant particular need. And God exalted him. He honored him above every other name. And he made him the head of the church that he served and saved. Deacons get the privilege of manifesting this in the church today. Every time a deacon takes responsibility and meets a need, it's a little reminder of how Christ served us. And so we ought to have them. We ought to help them. We ought to honor them rightly as servants for Christ to his body. Let's pray.